Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Today we're headed over to Massachusetts for a visit with Amar Ahmad, staff member with Mass Peace Action, where he has served as co-chair of the Legislative Political Committee and as an organizer with the Fund Healthcare Not Warfare Project. Among the rich perspectives Amar brings to his work is his identity as a Muslim and his extensive reading. Raised right there in Boston, Amar Ahmad joins us via Zoom from Boston, Massachusetts. Amar, it's wonderful to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Mark, thank you so much for having me. With what's going on in Ukraine, does that represent an increase in work for you as part of Mass Peace Action? Yeah, the the Mass Peace Action and everyone, I think many, many people are very concerned with what's happening in Russia and Ukraine. So Mass Peace Action is doing a lot of different activities. We did a public rally yesterday. We're doing different webinar programs online, a book reading club, congressional advocacy. So yeah, we've been working on this issue. And what did you do as part of the rally? We had one here on Friday that was organized by Jonah, which is a local grassroots action group. Anyway, it was largely silent. They wanted to have silent prayer for it. What did you do at your rallies? Oh, okay. That sounds great. On our side, what we did is we had speakers. We had speakers representing different organizations and groups, or in some cases, speaking for themselves. We also had some songs about peace. Can you sing any of them? I don't know if you're a singer at all. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm not. I can't I can't sing any of them. But I enjoyed listening to them. That's good. Did you get good turnout? Are people interested and why are they interested? Some people get interested, I think, from probably a non mass peace action perspective, saying, Oh, look at Russia invaded Ukraine. We should get our military over there. I'm pretty sure that's not your message. What is your message? Yeah, no, that's not our message. Our message is, you know, it's interesting to answer your question about turnout. I think we had maybe about 200 people there. That's the number some people have been estimating. There were other rallies in the area that actually had more turnout. I think some of them might have had the message that you just articulated. I think this is a very complex situation and different people are processing it in different ways. And because of that, the the message people put out there It's a product of how they're processing it. And I'll just speak for myself for a second here, because this has become a big thing in the news cycle. Of course, it's a big event. All our political leaders and media are talking about this almost as if it came from nowhere. And I I didn't know much about the historical context of Russia and Ukraine. But the more and more I read about Russia and Ukraine and the history and the context the more I realized how much I just don't know. I still feel like that. But in regards to this conflict in particular, I'm starting to come to an understanding that this is a much more complex situation than the information put out there from our mainstream media. And for example, there's a whole sequence of events starting, you could start it in 2014. And there's a whole sequence of events, different things that happen. Ukraine is a very complex country in itself. Many people speak Ukrainian, many people speak Russian. There's certain cultural complexities and uh, geographic complexities and political complexities. And in that context, 
Ukraine elected a democratically elected government in this uh, somewhat divided country. Then the U.S., the United States essentially backed a coup in Ukraine in 2014. U.S. backed coup and put in what I consider kind of like a puppet government to the U.S. or to Western interests. Long story short, what I'm saying is there's a whole sequence of events that led up to this. I don't perceive this war as having started a week ago or two weeks ago. I think this war in particular started in 2014, and it's escalated in recent weeks. But I think what people may or may not consider is that actually the United States and NATO and others had a big part in what's going on here. Some of this, I imagine, you got from your conversation with Ray McGovern. Is that true? Did he fill in some of that? I've only watched a small portion of that webinar. Yeah, Ray McGovern's been one of the people who is very knowledgeable about this. And I think it would benefit people to read his writings or to listen to his talks on Russia. He worked as a CIA intelligence analyst on, I think, Russia and China for almost 30 years. So Ray's really knowledgeable. So yes, I learned a lot from speaking to Ray. We're also doing a book reading club. We're reading a book called War with Russia by Stephen Cohen. Stephen Cohen was a scholar of Russia. He spoke Russian and lived there. It's a very insightful and educational book where I learned a lot of this context that I was referring to earlier. Let's talk a little bit about some other topics, and this will turn around. And again, my big picture question is, what is the work of mass peace action? That's mass like in Massachusetts. I love puns, by the way. So mass peace action is a wonderful pun for someone in Massachusetts. So when you mentioned to me in the past, Ray McGovern, you also mentioned the book JFK and Unspeakable by James Douglas. I interviewed James about his book, Gandhi and the Unspeakable. So I actually got to know him, read that book. Some people say as soon as you talk about the kind of topics James Douglas was addressing, that you're conspiracy theorist and get dismissed right away. The book that he wrote about Gandhi did not strike me that way at all. It was actually one of the best books I've ever read about Gandhi. What did you get from JFK and the Unspeakable? How did that lead you to Ray McGovern? Well, Ray McGovern led me to JFK and the Unspeakable. So I was just asking him out of curiosity, really, about the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And he directed me to this book, JFK and the Unspeakable by James Douglas, which I thought was a really fascinating book. It had a really profound impact on me personally. And I, I learned so much about the United States and the Cold War. That that book, I think it provides the historical context behind the assassination of John Kennedy. After I read that book, it impacted me so much. I went online and I tried to find talks or writings by James Douglas. And he was speaking about the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., and he spoke about how he covered a trial in civil court by the King family. And they, I guess, essentially approved in civil court that there was a conspiracy involved in the death of Martin Luther King Jr., the, the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., that included Memphis police and included FBI. And I believe the government awarded the King family a lot of money for that. So uh, just listening to James Douglas speak about that, I thought, why don't any of us know about this? We have a Martin Luther King Day holiday. We hold him up as a hero. But I don't think it's taught to children in schools, the context of who killed him and why did they kill him? Why, why was this man, this leader killed? And same with John Kennedy. Actually, James Douglas, I understand, is writing a book right now on the four assassinations of JFK, RFK, Martin Luther King, and Malcolm X. So I'm really much looking forward to that book. 
In regards to what you were saying about conspiracy theories, Ray McGovern and a lot of people have spoken about this. When President John Kennedy was killed and Lyndon Johnson became the president, he appointed a Warren Commission to investigate the murder of President Kennedy. One of the people on that Warren Commission was Alan Dulles, who was uh, formerly the head of the CIA, who John Kennedy actually fired over the Bay of Pigs. There was a lot of tension there. John Kennedy fired him, literally, over the Bay of Pigs. And a lot of people suspected he had something to do with this assassination. So when people had that skepticism, why is, when we suspect he had something to do with this, why is he on the commission investigating it? Their response to that was, you're a conspiracy theorist. So it was like a concerted campaign to call people conspiracy theorists to discredit certain lines of thinking in regards to this assassination. So that's what Ray McGovern says. And apparently there's documents for this too, where they put the CIA put this in writing, where if people talk about this in media, then, you know, discredit them as conspiracy theorists. It's a campaign. Also, Mark, I think you said to me, you're a Quaker and isn't it the Quakers who say speak truth to power. So I think it's very important to engage in an intellectual exercise of being curious of the world around us and trying to understand the world as best we can. It's through that process I came to this JFK assassination because the official government story is that John Kennedy was killed by one shooter, Lee Harvey Oswald, from behind with three bullets. Lee Harvey Oswald was behind John Kennedy and killed him with three bullets from behind. But the more you look into this, the more you have to question it. That doesn't make sense at all. There's eyewitnesses at the scene saying different things. There's a whole series of physical evidence pointing to a completely different direction that there was more than one shooter. So I came at this from a place of realizing that John Kennedy was killed, that actually happened, and thinking that if a president of the United States was murdered, why did that happen? Who did that? Who would have the capability to even do something like that? That seems like something that would be very difficult to do. So I came at it from that direction, and I asked Ray McGovern, and he pointed me to this book by James Douglas, So I can't really elaborate more on that because I think it's a very deep book. If people wanted to read it, I think that would be great. So yeah, I just went on this journey and trying to use my own critical thinking about what happened and why. And the more I looked into it, the more I realized, actually, this is a really, really important saga and question for not just our country, but the whole world. This had global implications. So James Douglas's writing had a really profound impact on me. One of the important parts of it, and I don't think you've mentioned anything about this yet, Amar, is why was JFK killed? That's one of the important things. And I think it it probably comes out in the webinars, which, again, I haven't had a chance to listen to yet. But having spoken with James Douglas myself, he is not some wild-eyed conspiracy-type person. He's very careful, documents each step. And the important question that you haven't mentioned yet, or the important answer that you haven't brought forward yet, is why kill JFK? What was the purpose of that in terms of what our government is doing? Exactly. That's the really important question. And as far as I understand, there's so many layers to this, and I still process this and think about this. I mean, essentially, I think what the answer is, is that we were in the midst of a Cold War with Russia. By the way, I'm so glad you brought up this topic, because I I think it is actually very relevant to what's happening right now in regards to the US and Russia. And maybe we could talk about that later. But back to your question of why was John Kennedy killed? We were in the midst of a Cold War with Russia, the Soviet Union, and we had a young politician, a charismatic politician from Massachusetts, 
He spoke well. People liked him. And he became president. He ran for president. He became president. He ran on uh, policies that were actually Cold War policies. In a lot of cases, he had very hawkish policies in regards to Cuba and, and other places. So he was a product of the U.S. empire. You could call it that. But what James Douglas documents, I'm not sure if Jim Douglas used this word or if other people have used this word, but what, what, what they document that like towards the end of his life, he was killed in 1963. Around that time, he went through this uh, spiritual transformation, I, I think. And if people are interested, they could read John Kennedy's speech at American University in 63, because in that speech, he's Norman Cousins, who worked with John Kennedy and who later became a major like anti-nuclear activist. He says that John Kennedy's American University speech is, is John Kennedy's proposal essentially to end the Cold War. He's challenging the U.S. public to think about the Soviet Union and about Russian people differently, like as, as human beings, similar to us who want similar things that we do, family and love and happiness and those types of things. He's challenging the American public and how we think about the Soviet Union. And I think as a product of that speech and what he was saying, actually, the U.S. and the Soviet Union, they signed a nuclear test ban treaty where they signed a treaty to stop testing nuclear weapons, which is very provocative as well as like profoundly damaging to our environment. That nuclear test ban treaty, people to John Kennedy's right, they were very critical of that, thinking that this is like being weak on communism, weak on the Soviet Union. And in regards to like, for example, the Cuban Missile Crisis and even the Bay of Pigs, they wanted him to go a lot further than what he was willing to go in the Cuban Missile Crisis. His military advisors, the Pentagon, the CIA, the others, they wanted him to nuclear bomb Cuba, and he didn't do that. So basically, they thought he was weak on communism, and he would pull us out of Vietnam, and he had bad policies in regards to Cuba. I think that's basically why he was killed from like reactionary forces in the US. By the way, the day after he was killed, Fidel Castro delivered a speech about his analysis of the murder of John Kennedy. And Fidel Castro and John Kennedy, they had a kind of a unique relationship. They had started a secret back channel dialogue because they weren't allowed to engage in diplomatic negotiations out in the open because then Kennedy would be attacked by his political opponents in the US for being weak on communism. So they did a secret dialogue. It was pretty remarkable. Kennedy said to Castro in a letter that he thought that the Cuban revolution was just. And after John Kennedy was murdered, Castro delivered remarks to the Cuban people about his thinking on the assassination. He said that the U.S. is an enemy of Cuba. They've been an enemy of the Cuban revolution, and uh, including the John Kennedy administration. And even still, the murder of Kennedy is a sad day for them as a Cuban people. And he goes on to say why, because essentially because he started to see Kennedy as a partner for peace, possibly. He understood right away instinctively that Kennedy was killed by more reactionary right-wing forces in the U.S. and that this would make diplomacy between Cuba and the U.S. even more difficult going forward, which was proven true by history. So Castro had a really fascinating analysis, which people could read. And he also offers a critique of the media, how poor of a job the U.S. media did reporting on this. And not just a poor job, but it was probably maybe not nefarious than that in some cases. 
So it's really fascinating. And getting back to why the original question of why was Kennedy killed, I mentioned the test ban treaty. I mentioned Kennedy's detente towards Cuba and the Soviet Union. And not he was against the war in Vietnam. And that's like well documented. And in fact, he signed an executive order, which has been declassified that he wanted to pull troops out of Vietnam in 63 and even more by 65, which of course he didn't get to live for. But also he had started a back-channel dialogue with Khrushchev in the Soviet Union, the leader of the Soviet Union. I think it was Jim Douglas who commented on this. It was really remarkable that these two leaders from across the world, one in the States, the United States, one in the USSR, they had actually become close to each other because they had become isolated in their own governments to a certain extent. And through that process, they had become closer to each other, even being in different parts of the world, just by being isolated by their own governments. And both of them being somewhat cautious about not wanting to go to nuclear war and blow the world up. They, this is a big responsibility. We're in the Cold War. These countries have massive nuclear weapons. This could potentially mean the end of the world. And that's a massive weight for any person to carry. And if people wanted John Kennedy to drop bombs on Cuba, and if he resisted that, that's good. We should not be dropping nuclear bombs anywhere. So I just think Jim Douglas's observation was really remarkable, how these two leaders from across the world, across cultures, across languages, they formed a connection, a friendship, a companionship through writing each other letters in this really difficult time of global history. Which of the webinars would you recommend that people listen to more completely so that people can understand some more of the complexity of what you're talking about? Well, I think maybe the webinar format isn't the right format to learn about this, but I would really recommend Jim Douglas's book, uh, JFK and the Unspeakable. Okay. But I, I spoke on a web, that book is dedicated to Vince Salandria and Marty Schatz, who Jim Douglas in his dedication calls them teachers and friends. Marty Schatz is someone who I've come to meet through activism here in Massachusetts. We've been working together on, on different things. So I did a webinar with Marty where I interviewed him. Marty wrote his own book about this, actually, which is available for free online. I did a webinar with Marty on that and Dr. Schatz. The title of his book is called History Will Not Absolve Us, Orwellian Control, Public Denial, and the Murder of President Kennedy. So that's, that's the name of our webinar as well. Orwellian Control, Public Denial, and the Murder of President Kennedy. That's on the Massachusetts Peace Action YouTube channel. And I'll include a link to that on Northern Spirit Radio. Folks, you're listening to Spirit in Action. I'm speaking with an organizer from Mass Peace Action. That's Mass as in Massachusetts, peaceaction.org. I've got the link on Northern Spirit Radio. I was going to ask you a few things about the organization, Mass Peace Action. I believe there are four staff. That's what it says on your website. You have your executive director, your assistant director, you've got an organizer, and you've got the office coordinator. So you are the organizer, so everything that gets organized is your fault. So... (laughs) (laughs) The topics you're talking about, whether it's JFK or what that has to do with Ukraine, are these common ideas within mass peace action or is this your particular bailiwick or I'm just trying to understand what the organization is like versus Amar Ahmad, what he specifically is into? No, thanks for that question. I met Marty Schatz through Mass Peace Action. And as a result of, uh, you know, some of the stuff we've done in regards to this JFK stuff, we started a working group, which actually is a part of Mass Peace Action with people from all over the country join us by Zoom 
to talk about the uh, talk, not only about the assassination of President Kennedy, but his speech at American University, because that speech articulated ideals of peace with like world peace and also disarmament of nuclear weapons and disarmament of also conventional weapons. So we look at that speech and the ideals behind it, and we try to think amongst ourselves, how can we promote this, like world peace, nuclear abolishment, and abolishment of conventional weapons. So that is a working group within mass peace action. However, not everyone is fully on board with that sort of thing. Some people are hesitant and think it's getting close to conspiracy theories and stuff. Mass Peace Action as an organization, I've been with this organization for two years now, and I've been working here as staff member for one year. The organization has been around long before that. I think it was the official founding date was 1957, and it's gone through different mergers and changes of names since then. I don't fully know the detailed history, but I think that broad stroke is it was started in 1957 as an organization against nuclear weapons. That's like the flagship issue is like we're against nuclear weapons and we want a world free of nuclear weapons. So the organization Mass Peace Action, it has different working groups. We have a nuclear disarmament working group. We have a no Cold War working group, which is focused on no Cold War with Russia and China. I'm part of that. We have a Middle East working group, Latin America working group, Fund Healthcare Not Warfare working group and a peace and climate working group. So there's all these working groups. And now we also have a JFK working group, which is kind of new. So we have these different working groups and different activists campaigning for against nuclear weapons, for peace, for diplomacy, against war. We also have a Palestine-Israel working group, which I'm part of. So different people have different issues they're passionate about. And sometimes we have discussions and debates. Sometimes we haven't even have disagreements. But I actually think that's a strength to the community to have this sort of ideological diversity. So we're actually nonpartisan and what nonprofit and open to anybody who is for the cause of peace. It sounds like a whole lot of good stuff going on with mass peace action. Again, links on NordenSpiritRadio.org, folks. I wanted to toss in a few of my comments. First of all, I'll mention Cuba. I was there in 2010 with the Quaker Folk Dance Group that I'm one of the founders of, uh, the group called the Friendly Folk Dancers. We traveled around the country, and I wish I had a recording of one of the speeches given by uh, one of the officials in the Communist Party. We performed dances from different countries, bringing them together in peace. That's one of the things Friendly Folk Dancers does. And so we had performed that. There were a number of people speaking, and then the official person from the Communist Party spoke. And he gave a bit of a screed against the United States. He had talked about this, something they'd organized with 19 different countries there, and our group being from the U.S. So he had said... The Cuban people oppose the U.S. government for its policies towards Cuba, and we don't like the U.S. government, but we are not against the American people. The American people are our friends. And then he said, and this almost brings me to tears each time I think of it, he asked everyone to say along with him, Vivo los Estados Unidos, long live the United States. And our host, who's a Cuban Quaker, leaned over and said, my God, that's the first time those words have been heard in Cuba since the Cuban Revolution back in 1959 and by a Communist Party official. And part of what I found out while I was there by watching Cuban TV, I saw what the Cuban government was allowing into the media and they control free speech. There's not free speech in Cuba. 
and the TV and radio only include what the Cuban government wants people to hear. But one thing they did cover was a vote to call for the end of the U.S. embargo on Cuba. Now that resolution has been overwhelmingly approved for 29 years. In this past year, as in many years, there were only two votes against the resolution, something like 185 for those votes against by the USA, of course, and by Israel. Almost all of the nations of the world, including our European allies, voted to condemn and call for an end to the U.S. embargo on Cuba. That's a major piece of news, right? They covered this on the news in Cuba, but I doubt that any mainstream media anywhere in the USA covered this news. Of course, there would be websites or minor media outlets where people could possibly find out about it. Without heavy-handed oppression or anything, the U.S. effectively controls what we hear and see. So our free speech is effectively stifled by political and economic interests, even while we supposedly have our freedom. The point being, governments do repressing. Sometimes they do it directly, and sometimes they just do it by shaming you, by calling you a conspiracy theorist. And I observed it in the U.S., and I've observed it in other countries as well. That's right. And, you know, I I haven't been to Cuba, so I can't comment on that. But I take your word for it. But I have lived many, many years of my life here in the United States. And Noam Chomsky, and I forget his co-author, but they wrote a book, Manufacturing Consent, about how they manufacture consent through the media. So I, I think this concept of free speech here in the United States, in a way, it's a facade. When Noam Chomsky wrote Manufacturing Consent, the gatekeepers are, of our information were ABC and NBC and major corporate media. And that's still true. But also now through my generation and in current times, the gatekeepers of our information are increasingly becoming more and more like Google and Facebook. I I saw somewhere that something 90% of the internet traffic goes through Google or Facebook. So we see this a lot where people have controversial views or different types of views, alternative perspectives. They'll be getting banned off of social media or they'll be get, if they make their living making videos on YouTube, for example, they'll get demonetized, all sorts of things. So I think your observation is absolutely correct that I think there's a misconception in the States here. We think we have the free speech here, but I think actually our debate and our our discourse is actually much more narrow than people might assume. Absolutely it is. And I can think of other examples, but I also lived in Togo in West Africa where I was a Peace Corps volunteer. That country was a dictatorship. And one of my experiences of living there is most people, most days can talk to you, but if in class I brought up anything that was criticism of the government, there was a, some school policies I didn't like. I had students talk to me outside and say, you better tone that down because that can get you deported. And I saw other teachers hauled away. So I actually know what it's like to live in a relatively benevolent, but very clearly dictatorship. So as much as we don't have real free inquiry and open minds here, I do think we have free speech, but what we listen to ends up being carefully manufactured. 
So it, it's dangerous that way. People miss out on some very important things. They don't think we have options. And folks, you are listening to Spirit in Action, NorthernSpiritRadio.org is our website. And on that site, we got links to all of our guests. Today, we're speaking with Amar Ahmad. He's an organizer for Mass Peace Action, their website, MassPeaceAction.org. You don't have to memorize all this because we have on NorthernSpiritRadio.org links to all of our guests from the past 16 and a half years. We've got a wealth of information that you can access through there. We've talked to all the people we could who are trying to make a positive change for the world. World healing is what we're about. So whether it's in our Spirit in Action program or our Song of the Soul program, you'll find people who are going to make this world a better place, like Amar Ahmad. Again, he's with Mass Peace Action. Follow the link to their site and find out about their working groups. They've got working groups about all of the important topics that really are going to improve our society and our world. And Amar is a member of some of those work groups. You don't have to do it all, do you, Amar? No, we have a robust team of volunteers and activists. And yeah, if anyone want, listening to this show wants to join any of our working groups as a volunteer, we're meeting by Zoom these days on topics like nuclear disarmament, no Cold War, Middle East issues, Palestine issues, Latin America. They could reach out to us at info at masspeaceaction.org. Or they could email me personally at amar, A-M-A-R, at masspeaceaction.org. And also on the nordenspiritradio.org, I'll include those links. And you've got links to all of our other guests. There's a place where you can comment on these programs. We do love two-way communication. And that's one way to get around limits in news, is when we converse with one another and we listen to one another. So please, do post your comments when you visit. There's also a place to donate under support. You can help us out and also support your local community radio stations. Local media is so important in terms of having alternatives, just as what Amar and I have been talking about. You need to have access of people who've got different interests in mind. Corporations and government have different viewpoints, different things they want to get out and emphasize for you. Please talk to one another and community radio stations, best way to do that. Please support them with your hands and wallets. And we'll talk some more to Amar. I was going to ask you, Amar, about another one of the working groups that you've been part of. I think maybe you started with it. It's about the health care, funding health care instead of war preparation. I've been a war tax resistor since 1982 where that of our federal income tax, $1.50% of it goes to the military. And that's incredible. And most time we've been at peacetime. So why does half of our federal tax dollar have to go there? It's just incredible. Tell me about the working group for Fund Healthcare. Thanks so much for bringing this up. So it's called Fund Healthcare, Not Warfare. The thing you just brought up just now, that's one of the central things that we're very focused on. The fact that when U.S. citizens pay income tax, the discretionary budget for the U.S. government, which doesn't include Social Security and Medicare, Medicaid, those are in trusts, I think, or trust funds. But the, the actual discretionary budget, over 50% of it goes to the war mach machine, essentially. Many people don't know that. So one of the things we're doing is trying to amplify that message that so much over half of our money in the discretionary, our tax money in the discretionary budget goes to the war economy, to weapons manufacturing 
manufacturers into wars overseas. At Massachusetts Peace Action, we actually introduced a bill into the state legislature in Massachusetts where they would have to like publicize this information to all the taxpayers, like where the taxpayer money is being sent. So that's one of the ways where we're trying to address that topic that you brought up, Mark. But the health Fund Healthcare Not Warfare Group, this started um, around the same time the pandemic hit, like after the pandemic hit. Of course, the pandemic was a big issue. Everyone was traumatized. The whole world was traumatized. And especially people who had COVID and who had family members with COVID and people who were working in industries and jobs where they were at high risk for COVID, including nurses and physicians and social workers and the healthcare sector. So what we are trying to do in our fund healthcare, not warfare group is bring people from like the healthcare constituencies together. Our group is represented by people who come from public health backgrounds, from nursing backgrounds, people who are physicians, people who are biomedical researchers, people from academia, people from the world of healthcare activism. And we're trying to bring all these people together. And we're essentially trying to make the point that our tax money is being misused and it's going to warfare and it could be going to better things instead that could be helping people such as healthcare. So, I mean, it's really all in the title of our group, Fund Healthcare, Not Warfare. Uh, Fund being the action verb. We want our tax money to be reallocated to things that are positive and help people and bring people together. Things like healthcare and education and how housing, things like that. And uh, warfare, it just does the opposite. It destroys communities and it literally kills lives. So it's very destructive, yet it's very profitable to people, for example, who make companies who make bombs or bullets and hardware needed to be used in war. For example, the companies that make nuclear weapons or parts to nuclear weapons, they have a virtual monopoly on that industry. So it's is very profitable and they get these government contracts from the US government and from other governments to make weapons of mass destruction. So yeah, we just wanted to, in this time of COVID, come together, bring people together and continue our work for peace. And in this case, it's fund healthcare, not warfare. It's actually been my perspective that there have been a number of the luminaries of the war tax resistance action in Massachusetts. I remember some from the 1980s forward, a number of people stepping forward, making this a public issue trying to educate people. Is that still the case? Is war tax resistance still a very active topic in general or with Massachusetts Peace Action? I have to be honest that, you know, as a younger person in this space, I've, uh, there's much I'm still learning. I've come into a community that is new to me, so I'm, I'm still learning a lot much. So I think like the war tax industry resistors, like maybe you could talk to me more about it and educate me because this is something I'm still learning about. And we, I'm one of the younger people in our group. We have some members who are older and they would actually be much more knowledgeable and be able to speak to that much better. So I'm, I'm embarrassed I can't speak to this topic, but maybe you could talk to me about it, Mark. Well, I could, but I think that I'll refer people just to do a little war tax resistance. If you do that search on org, you'll find interviews I've done with people active in this across the country. You and I can talk more about it, Amar, but I'm very interested in the comment you made. And again, folks, we're talking with Amar Ahmad. He is organizer with org is their website. You're younger 
person then. My hair is white. It's a beautiful white. I think it makes me look very wise, maybe. But your hair is still got that rich colors of youth. How young are you? I'm 32. And you've been two years, you've been active with Mass Peace Action. Did you have activism time before that, or is this something relatively new in your life? This is something relatively new in my life. Uh, Before Mass Peace Action, I wasn't really engaged in activism, but I was doing reading. So that's to the extent I would try to, I would have an interest in the topics that Mass Peace Action is working on. But working here has been my first experience, like engaging in activism. I'm always interested for spirit in action, talking to people about how they got to their way of thinking, how they've changed. If you weren't a peace activist before, if you weren't surrounded by people who were involved in that, if world healing was not your thing before, what were you into and how did you get there? You said reading, but something got you to reading certain books. Maybe it was a course you took. Maybe it was a a group you connected with. How did this happen? I think since I was young, a little child, I've believed in God. I actually believe in God. I come from a Muslim background. I'm actually a Muslim. So I used to go to Sunday schools and listen to different, all different teachers teaching about faith and religion and different things. And sometimes these teachers would say different things. A lot of times they would be in agreement. Sometimes they would be contradicting each other. So I felt like it was up to me to decide for myself what it is that I believe, be accountable for what I think and say and do. So I came to the conclusion that, uh, yeah, no, actually, I do believe that there's a God that exists. And I've thought about that, like, what if that's not true? What if people who are atheists, they're right, that there's no God that exists. But I went through my own process. I did a lot of thinking. I did a lot of reading. I felt firm in the belief that God exists. And even if God doesn't exist, the lessons I learned from my understanding of God and religious faith are positive lessons. To be a good person, to be honest, to not hurt people, to be kind, gentle, and respectful. So even if God doesn't exist, if I'm taking away these messages that are positive for me in my life and for others around me, then it's still worthwhile for me to believe in God. But I I do believe in God. And there was a woman named Karen Armstrong. She's a scholar of religion. Religion, I think from England, and she was a Catholic nun, but I don't think she's a Catholic nun anymore. She, I think she left Catholicism for some personal reasons, but I think she still believes in God. But anyways, she's written about a lot of different religions and the history. She wrote a book, I think, called The History of God, and she's written about Islam. I've read some of her books on Islam, which I really appreciate her perspective and her scholarship. One thing she said, which I took away, she articulated well what I think my personal belief is in regards to my religious faith, that Muslims, we have a personal duty to be good people, to be kind, honest, and to do the best we can individually as people. So that's one like obligation, essentially. And another one is not just as an individual, but as like groups of people, as communities, to come together and to do the right thing collectively. This activism, actually, it's an expression of my spiritual beliefs, of my belief in God. When these activists get together and they say fund healthcare, not warfare, and they want to reallocate our tax money from making weapons of war into providing healthcare for people who are suffering, that to me makes a lot of sense. That's consistent with my spiritual and my religious views. So that's kind of how I got into this. It's not really an expression of my political views, but more so my spiritual views. Can I check something with you? My knowledge about Islam is pretty shallow. 
though I've tried to learn and I still always attempt to take information and learn from that. When I lived in Togo, I lived in a compound with a couple families who were Muslim. So I had them as neighbors, not as abstract people elsewhere. And so my perspective is considerably friendlier towards Islam than a lot of people in the U.S. who are raised to fear Muslims. One of the things that I think is true and I wanted to check if this was your experience, is that Islam is considerably not hierarchical. I grew up Catholic, for instance. I, I became Quaker sometime after I was 18. But, you know, the Pope, the bishops, and on down to your local priests, it's a very hierarchical religion, Catholicism is. And that doesn't mean that there aren't Catholic workers who go their own way and other people like that. But it means that as a whole, the religion is hierarchical. I think that is considerably less true in Islam. What's your perspective on that? Yeah, and I just want to make clear that I am not an expert or a scholar on Islam. So all I'm speaking for is my perspective. So I appreciate you asking me that question. I think that's right, what you're saying. And I think like when you were saying that, one thing that comes to mind, and I'm paraphrasing here, but I think there's a line in the Quran from God wrote the Quran, who wrote, God gave you a brain, so use it. So it's encouraging critical thinking. And it's encouraging to think for yourself. Also, in a different part of the Quran, it says that there is no compulsion in religion. We shouldn't force people to believe one thing or another. So I think that's true. I think it falls to the person, what is it that they think? And there shouldn't be any compulsion on that. I think that's consistent, kind of, Mark, with what you're saying. Again, I'm not a scholar. Another thought I have here is James Douglas's book, JFK and the Unspeakable, who's dedicated to two people, one of who is Marty Schatz. Marty Schatz wrote a book called History Will Not Absolve Us. And in that book, it's a collection of writing from different people. It was in that book I read, I don't know if uh, your listeners, they might be familiar with someone named Fred Cook. Fred Cook was an anti-war journalist of a previous era, a prolific writer in I believe he wrote for The Nation magazine and also wrote many books. So he wrote a lot about the military-industrial complex and some great exposés. I actually didn't know who he was long before my time. But anyways, I was reading his writing, an excerpt from one of his books. And because he was such a great writer, he basically got to publish whatever he wanted in The Nation magazine. But when President John Kennedy was killed, he started thinking about this and researching it and doing his journalistic research. He started seeing different inconsistencies, different contradictions, and things that made him question everything he was hearing from the media and from the Warren Commission. So he wrote in one of his books, he, he wrote about how the Nation magazine wouldn't let him print what he wanted to in regards to this JFK assassination, even though he had a great working relationship with them in the past. And also uh, some trouble he was having at home with his wife. His wife was uh, starting to question, like, who are you to question this JFK stuff? Who are you to question the Warren Commission? And his response, I might be paraphrasing here. His response was, God gave me a brain so I could use it. He said something about, it's like adding two and two and getting to six. It doesn't make sense. So God gave me a brain. I'm going to use it. God damn it. And Fred Cook wrote that. And I don't think he was a Muslim. But when I read that, it reminded me of what I had read in the Quran. So that was just a connection that I wanted to share. 
You mentioned something else, Amar. You mentioned Sunday schools. You've been to different Sunday schools. I am used to Sunday school being connected with Christianity, or even for Jews, they often have a Sunday school. The holy day for Muslims starts on Friday, right? It goes to Saturday, essentially a 24-hour period. And for Jews, their holy day is Saturday. And Christians, just to be different, had to choose a day later. Right. So it's Sunday. So Sunday school, is this something that's done in Islam or is this, uh, did you just visit other people? And I believe in checking out and learning all I can about everyone. No one's my enemy. <laughs> that's, that's great. Yes. As you said, in Islam, like the, our day of the week to gather and pray, our special day for community prayer, that's like Friday. But we did Sunday school. I grew up in the States, so we did Sunday school here just to fit into the weekend because Friday is a weekday and people work. So I think that's where Sunday school here in the States comes from. I don't know other Muslim countries. I don't know if they have their day of religious education for children, like on a different day on Friday or something. I don't know. I want to give a big shout out to the person who made it possible for you to be here. There's a luminary who's local to Boston, the area where you're in. Hayat Imam is a wonderful, wonderful woman who has done her activism for women and for many other ways of activism. Her husband, Joseph, is also a wonderful man. Both of them, as Muslims, have been very fruitful in what they've had to share. And I want to encourage people to look up Hayat Imam and her husband, Joseph, both of whom I've interviewed on NorthernSpiritRadio.org. So please check them out. And thank you, Hyatt, for connecting me with Amar. How well do you know Hyatt? I've come to know Hyatt through our activism here in Massachusetts and with Massachusetts Peace Action. She's also, I understand, very active with a group called Dorchester People for Peace in Dorchester in Boston. Hyatt is really great. I look up to her as a mentor when I go to rallies and direct actions. I Oftentimes, I see her there. She's a very committed and passionate activist. She's also a Muslim. She's done some work in Massachusetts Peace Action in regards to the post-9-11 era and the war on terror and how anti-Muslim bigotry was used in that time and the impacts it's had on some Muslim people. She's been a leader for us in that space as well. So Hyatt is just really great. She's one of our leaders and, for me, a mentor. I also wanted to, I think, disagree with you a little bit, but I want to agree with you mainly overall, just so you know. You mentioned that in the Quran, you know, it tells you, use your own brain. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be compelling people to do things. And I, I believe those things are in the Quran. Don't get me wrong. I would also note that in the Christian scriptures, it says, love your enemy. And <laughs> in many ways, it makes it very clear you should not go to war. You should not be fighting. Put away your sword, Jesus says to Peter, and so on. And that hasn't stopped Christians from engaging in a lot of war. And I think that likewise for Muslims, there are countries where leaving the Islamic faith can get you killed. You're an apostate and you can die. So that uh, clearly there's, there's Muslims who are behaving as if compulsion was allowed. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Because yes, I've heard that as well. And uh, just to be clear, this, this isn't a topic that I've studied deeply or looked deeply into. I've heard that that happens. Yes. 
And to the extent that may be happening in places in the world, that to me seems to violate what would be values of Islam, the way, at least the way I've come to learn and understand them. And this isn't unique to Islam, but I think in all religions and ideologies, they can be utilized by people for all sorts of purposes, political purposes, economic purposes. That's happened in Islam as well, where people will perhaps talk from a religious perspective, but they may be doing it for political reasons to get support in whatever area of the world they may be in. So again, I think it's really important for people to read and educate themselves and come to their own conclusion about what they think, because there's so much different information out there, and it could be hard to know what to think about things. And that's especially true in a place like the United States, when it comes to a topic like Islam, because the political nature of how things changed after 9-11, and the way this became a part of our political discussion, it's just rife with all types of bad information, really. And oftentimes information coming from cynical actors or nefarious actors with all types of different intentions. So it could be very hard to understand what's what. And that's also true, like in, in different Muslim countries, where, you know, that's what I'm trying to say, people could weaponize religion for personal reasons or for political reasons. And in doing so, they could deviate from at least what I've come to understand as tenets of the religion, peace, love, family, that's the core of Islam, as I understand it. And that's a beautiful core that people really should learn about and not have it obfuscated by messages that other media and political interests have been bringing to you. So I think it's absolutely important for people to meet face to face. I had a question about how mass peace action works. Again, Massachusetts, you've got rich cultural variety around you. You certainly, I think some of your, your family was from Pakistan, right? I'm wondering how often you do potlucks, international potlucks, bring the food of the world together symbolically to make peace. Do you do that at all as part of Mass Peace Action? I think it's been kicked around once or twice in my case. I happened to join Mass Peace Action at the same time the pandemic hit, like two years ago. So I unfortunately wasn't with everyone when everything was physical. Ever since I've been with them, everything transitioned to digital. So I haven't had a chance to go to potlucks yet, but I've gone to, I mean, we did a rally, outdoor rally yesterday and I've, I've been to rallies, but I'm not sure if the potlucks have come back in full swing yet. Well, I advocate for them highly. I, and I also advocate dancing together. And I know that there are some issues with respect to dancing in Islam. Some portions of Islam do not support dancing, but bringing dances of different people from different countries and cultures together is one of the best ways to dance in the shoes of your neighbor. It's a really important peacemaking. I wanted to ask you just a few more things, Amar, before we disconnect. You mentioned anti-nuclear is really out of which the mass peace action group was organized. And I'm very aware about that, the closing down nuclear plants. One of the things about nuclear weapons production is that they could get more and more of the representatives and senators to vote for it as long as there was some nuclear production going on in both the representative districts for the U.S. House of Representatives or in the state. 
Is that true in Massachusetts? Massachusetts, in some ways, is one of the most liberal states in our country. Have they gotten rid of their participation in nuclear weapons? The short answer, I think, is no. Uh, we, there's a lot of activism going on to push us further in that direction to denuclearize. So, you know, it's interesting the comment you make about Massachusetts being liberal. Thomas Frank wrote a book called Listen Liberal, and he did a whole chapter in Fall River, Massachusetts to explore this whole idea of this democratic run place. And if they have the chance to implement this without any opposition from Republicans, it should be a democratic utopia, right? Well, not the case in Fall River as Thomas Frank documents. So I just wanted to throw that out there. But in regards to the nuclear stuff, I mean, no, there's a lot of activism we're trying to do, and we're trying to encouraging our representatives in Massachusetts to sign on to no first use legislation saying the United States won't be the first to use a nuclear weapon. And different activists are working on encouraging the United States to sign on to the TPNW treaty to prohibit TPNW nuclear nuclear weapons. I mean, people are very engaged. There's bills in the state legislature to try to get the state legislature to divest from companies that make nuclear weapons. Raytheon, one of the major military contractors of the country and of the world, they're headquartered here in Massachusetts. So there's actually, actually Hyatt Imam was a part of the Raytheon Anti-War Coalition, which is a coalition of different groups where we organize actions at Raytheon locations and try to bring attention to the destructive role Raytheon has had. In particular, they're focused on the war in Yemen because Saudi Arabia is doing a war in Yemen, which is backed by the United States. And Raytheon is profiting heavily from that, but it's caused a, humanit- a major humanitarian disaster in Yemen. I'm not an expert on this issue, but I've heard that cholera broke out there because of the Saudi bombing and mass starvation, just very terrible humanitarian crisis. So the reason we're focused on that here in Massachusetts is because Raytheon is headquartered right here in our state. So we're trying to make a connection between the international and the local. So I really applaud our Raytheon anti-war activists. There's many more aspects of Amar Ahmad and mass peace action that we could talk about here today. I haven't talked to you, Ahmad, about your interview with Abby Martin, that people should tune in and watch that hour, two hours of your talks with her. Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, another person you interviewed, will try and include links to all of these on northernspiritradio.org so people can catch up with you and experience firsthand some of your gifts of communication and seeking out truth and seeking out peace for our world. Thank you so much, Amar, for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for everything you do with Spirit in Action and Northern Spirit Radio. I think this is so important and valuable, so I applaud everything you're doing. Once more, a big thank you to Hayat Imam for connecting me up with Amar. We'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo.